when I think of the fascination behind immortality, I remember when I was a kid and I first understood the death concept and I remember being terrified. Now we're adults and we become acclimated to the idea. It's just something that it's like, it's, oh, it's around the corner. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to live life in the moment. And I was like, maybe four. And I would say that very um, standard like child's prayer before going to sleep. And one of the lines is, if I should die before I wake. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I remember becoming like really aware of what that meant and like turning to my mom and being like, what am I saying? <laughs> Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lon, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. If you had the chance to live forever, would you? Dorian Gray stayed forever young while his portrait aged in his place. Voldemort split his soul into pieces so he could never die, unless you killed all his horcruxes. Immortality and legacy building go hand in hand when it comes to preserving your existence, and while we may not have the means or magic to live forever, having a lasting impact on the world is something many aspire for. Fellow writer Leslie Henson joins me to discuss the immortality dilemma. Is it worth living forever? And what happens when your legacy is out of your control? Leslie. Hi, Vicki. Hey, can you hear me okay? I can. Awesome. I am so excited to have you on here. Um, a little background for people who do not know Leslie, uh, but she was my editor for a couple books, two books actually. And um, you really challenged me in so many ways to think about what ifs for all of my storylines. So I just wanted to say thank you for all that work. Well, my pleasure. You're such a great writer. And also you're such a fast writer, at least in my experience. The time that it would take you to turn around and have completely revisioned a scene was like, it was awesome. Oh, well, I don't think I've ever seen somebody do that in that type of time frame. <laughs> That was me hyperfixating. I'm learning how to use my hyperfixations for good. My current book is not as fast anymore. I'm I'm eight months into it, and I've only written half of it, which is unusual for me. But maybe it's normal. Yeah, that still sounds like warp speed for me. Oh, well, you're you're working on a book right now. What are you working on? I am. Um, I'm actually working on several books. Um, since we've last spoken, I've taken a job as a ghostwriter. Ooh. So I'm writing some nonfiction books um, through a company called Scribe Media. And it's a really great job to have. I am so happy with it. Um, it's a lot of writing. And so I've kind of had to decide that I'm not going to look at my work in progress for a few months, really. And that's okay. I needed some mm -hmm. space from it. But I am also working on my own novel, which is a loose interpretation of which is kind of an ancient story. But it's about a early 30s American woman who's traveling in France. I'm a hopeless Francophile. And she um, meets a woman named Salome. And they hit it off. And they're kind of traveling together. And, and the American finds out some kind of unsavory things about Salome's family. And kind of has to decide, do I want to betray my friend and write about this? Which Ooh. could be like a career-making story. The dilemma um, of all writers, right? Yeah, she's an essayist. So I okay. tried to keep her away from fiction. I was like, let's not make this a carbon copy of me. <laughs> but yeah, so that's my, my work in progress, my biggest one. Okay. So when I reached out to you with a list of topics, you gravitated towards um, immortality, legacy building. And the pursuit of immortality is a very popular concept in speculative fiction. Why do you think there's so much fascination around it? Well... So a thing I didn't mention about the work in progress as well is that something that the protagonist, her name's Courtney, 
um, discovers about Salome's family is that her stepfather, the stepfather character, has pretty much co-opted her father's scientific studies and has built an immortality cult around it. Ooh, a cult. I mean, does anybody ever tire of cults? That was no, kind of it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm trying to come up with comp titles and it's been really hard. I don't know if it's as hard for everybody as it is for me, but coming up with comp titles for your own work is miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm like, it's like Oscar Wilde meets Nixium. <laughs> oh, <what? laughs> that is very relevant right now. Re- relevant right now so maybe we'll yeah. get some bites. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> As I was doing research for this, I came across this really old book. So um, my boyfriend's grandmother used to own a bookstore and she has a bunch of books at her house. And so she, I was over there and she was like, go through these books, take what you want. And I found this really old book. It's published in 1955. It's based on some speeches that Ashley Montague did in 1951, where he talks about immortality. And there's just something about the 1950s and like science fiction, especially that they just have like such a, they go hand in hand, at least in my mind. And I'm not a major science fiction reader, but it's kind of like the Tomorrowland exhibit at Disney World. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Very optimistic view of the future. Exactly. Exactly. Really well put. So I I read this little, it's almost like a pamphlet about immortality, but he was saying that death is the one reality in which most men cannot believe. And there's this really funny quote from the then president of Columbia College, which then became Columbia University, who basically denounces science, saying, much as I love truth in the abstract, I love my sense of immortality still more. And if the final outcome of all the boasted discoveries of modern science is to disclose to men that they are more evanescent than the shadow of the swallow's wing upon the lake. If this, after all, is the best that science can give one, give me then, I pray, no more science. I will live on in my simple ignorance as my father did before me. And when I shall at length be sent to my final repose, let me lie down to a pleasant, even though they may be deceitful dream. Interesting. That was such a great quote. What I took away from that quote is that, or at least for me, you know, death is the one thing that we can't evade. And so if you really accept that death is coming, it kind of strips creativity from life in a certain way. I mean, there's a completely other way to look at it. And we see this in literature too, where you live life to the fullest because it's finite. Mm-hmm. But in more of a speculative or science fiction realm, um, the creativity around trying to evade death would be, you know, great writing fodder. When I think about, you know, obviously of all these philosophers and educated people that are talking about the, you know, immortality and death and then the optimism of the 1950s of what our future could look like, which is kind of funny compared to like how we view the future now. We have a very scared outlook on technology and robots rising and all that stuff. Uh, When I think of the fascination behind immortality, I remember when I was a kid and I first understood the death concept and I remember being terrified. Um, Now we're adults and we become acclimated to the idea. It's just something that it's like, it's, oh, it's around the corner. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to live life in the moment. At least that's why I think it's so fascinating. And then you have writers who really think about the concept and, and write about how we can break it break the rules of life I guess right oh I remember I was just thinking about this yesterday and I was remembering when I was like maybe four and I would say that very um standard like child's prayer before going to sleep and one of the lines is if I should die before I wake (laughs) oh yeah and I remember becoming like really aware of what that meant and like turning to my mom being like what am I saying (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) just face dark like hey, God, it's cool if you kill me tonight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, like, and strike now... Strike that clause. I am... Uh, I, have a, I have a 10-year-old now, and when she, between the ages of, like, six and eight mm. is when she was coming to me going, like, what is death? Like, it was dawning mm. on her, and I was like, oh. I just pretend like I've come to terms with it, you know? <laughs> like, let alone to comfort a child. Okay, it's the kind so... of thing to, to actually be alive and, and function in society, you really just 
have to be okay with it. But yeah. to write very interesting fiction, not being okay with it is probably a pretty good starting place. That's very true. And I think here in America, too, we're very separated from from acts of death, or at least we have a system in place. So um, unlike other cultures where you would have the bodies around for a bit during a mourning process, um, I think we have a, a very efficient process for if someone has passed moving them through, processing them, getting them ready for burial or whatever is going on, that maybe we're left with a lot of questions. And uh, so there's like a fascination with it. And these books and these literature and movies kind of help us process. That's very true. And also uh, on the side of industrialization, most people have never taken an animal life. And there are so many people who lived on farms, even like my grandfather's age, who killed their own chickens and saw death. Like even, and and there's a bit of reverence in that too, like understanding like, oh, the meat I'm eating is the consequence of a life lost. And then maybe being, you know, habitually different around that. We do have such a separation from it. I know that my mom coming from Vietnam, who was there during the war, mm. had a very different, just like her entire outlook um, on on food preparation. I remember one time she bought a fish from a market and it was alive and it was in the back seat, and I could hear it flopping around. Oh, my God. And she's, I'm like, what are you going to do with a fish? You know, like, <laughs> and she's like, I'm just going to throw it in the freezer. It'll fall asleep. Like, just like very like nonchalant. And I'm like, okay. Mm. I'm like, you know, young at the time. And uh, I worked for a Chinese restaurant uh, when I was a teenager during high school, and they were they had you know live crabs and everything, and they're just chopping them up like it's nothing, and mm. and it was very shocking to me because that wasn't part of my normal everyday experience. Whereas my mom, they had chickens, they killed chickens in their in the in their yard when she was growing up. Right. So interesting. So your experience with that is a desensitization um, because of being proximal to death versus what I was thinking of like some sort of reverence of like oh like I have to go kill a chicken to have meat so I'll eat less meat oh yeah yeah that's true too um I I always joke where I don't know if I'd be able to kill a cow if you know the apocalypse hits and we have to uh fend for ourselves and we live off the farm essentially (laughs) oh no (laughs) I'd probably go vegetarian unless my child is hungry and then I'll kill everything, you know, which is like the mama now, bear. That idea. is interesting. Um, no, I, I joke very glibly that I have absolutely no interest in surviving the apocalypse. Like turn <laughs> nice. me into cat food. I, I have more interest in my cat surviving than me. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> see, it, yes, that's the mama bear instinct coming out. It you is. Well, do what you got to do. Well, and, and I'm, I've been a vegetarian for I think about 18 years now. Um, I guess I should say pescatarian. I, I will eat fish from time to time. but And that mostly comes out of just loving animals and wanting, wanting to be very gentle with animals. Mm-hmm. But I was nannying. Um, and I had never really been around a baby much before. I was walking with her strapped to me in the little um, baby carrier. And this dog charged a fence that we were walking past. And it was like this lightning bolt went through my body that I knew I could kill that dog in one strike with my hand. I was just like, I could kill you. And I am such an animal lover. Like there's no part of me that even ever wants to go fishing. Like I take spiders outside. I was going to kill this dog to protect this baby. So it really did ignite something in me that was dormant before. Absolutely. It's, it's a very fascinating, um, phenomenon and when you talk about spiders i also take spiders outside unless they're in my kids rooms and then it's personal I, for whatever reason, why'd I don't, you go in there like, <laughs> you how dare you like, <laughs> <laughs> okay so then let's think of examples uh character examples that explore legacy building and immortality uh my first exposure was greek mythology i used to watch xena and hercules growing up in the 90s and hercules being immortal set him above people, regular people like you and me. He wasn't quite a god, but there was just a hierarchy of power associated with the immortals. Uh, what right. are some of your examples? Well, I also uh, went to mythology, and one of my favorite books I've read in the past several years is um, Circe by Madeline Miller. Oh, I love that book. Yeah, and, you know, Circe, who is a, I think she calls herself the least of the lesser goddesses, 
um, and she doesn't have any uh, godlike powers or divine powers, but she ends up uh, having a proclivity for witchcraft um, and turns Odysseus's men into pigs. But towards the end of the book, when she falls in love with a mortal, Telemachus, she falls in love with Telemachus, and she um, she crafts a potion that turns her mortal so that she can die when he dies. It's such a that whole book was so heartbreaking and touching Ugh. and inspirational at the same time. It was highly recommended read. Uh, absolutely for me too. It was everything I love in a book, which is I love character driven, but I also love a strong plot and the prose is gorgeous. So yes. can't go wrong. My other example is uh, for those who have seen the Apple TV original TV show called Foundation. It, it, it's based on the book series by Isaac Asimov. I think I said that right. I hope so. That's how I would have said it. <laughs> okay. Um, you have this emperor of this in giant, think of the galactic empire. I'm probably, I don't know if those are standard terms or if I'm messing up my fandoms here, but uh, he's an empire. He's an emperor that oversees a bunch of planets and galaxies. And he's a little worried about what his reign is going to look like after he dies. So he creates clones that will in perpetuity run his empire as a cycle. You have a child, a, a grown man and a senior man collectively ruling as brother dawn, brother day and brother dusk. And as each one age out, a new brother Don is born and they each transition into the, the new role. They rotate through the titles. I thought that was such a fascinating way of preserving legacy because you're being raised by the person you're going to replace. And then you're influencing. It's just like having, mm. you know, regular Royal families, but it's all supposed to be you. Interesting. I've actually read foundation and I don't remember that, but didn't you say that they it was changed pretty it? Loose? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I watched him for Lee Pace, I will admit, and he was Brother Day, so it was a lot of, it was fun for me to watch. <laughs> so I also wanted to think about legacy building more than immortality. And several years ago, I wrote a book review for um, Book Page, which is a book uh, trade publication. And the book is called Trinity by Louisa Hall, and it is about... J. Robert Oppenheimer, who is the father of the atomic bomb, who you can imagine has not the greatest legacy. Oh, yeah. But actually looking at the man um, on the back of the book here, it says he was a brilliant scientist, a champion of liberal causes and a complex and often contradictory character. And from a craft standpoint, I thought Louisa Hall did such a great job coming at telling the story of this man and drawing the picture of this man through um, this oblique angle of different characters who have, who, who cross paths with him. It was, do you, go, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, do, do you think if, how do you think he feels about where his legacy now and where things have ended? I don't think he feels great about that bomb <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. With you. It's, and it kind of, you know, this, uh, this was also kind of, you know, pre 1950s, it was world war two era, but, you know, on, right before the 1950s, which was that era we were just talking about as having this really positive view of the future. But he was aware of how many lives this was going to take. And famously, when he saw the, the test of the nuclear weapon in 1945, he said a piece of Hindu scripture ran through his mind. Now I am become death, the, the destroyer of worlds. Ooh. Yeah. And so it's interesting that he's also like bringing about this Hindu scripture um, because reincarnation is another way that immortality can be portrayed. If you knew that something you invented was going to cause devastating harm or destruction, how, what would you do? Good question. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. Like at that point, do you think that things are just rolling along? It's, it's a snowball going down a hill. And even if you could try to stop it, it's done. I think that's how he felt. And of course, like, this is the age of like, when this is going on, Hitler's been in power for a while, you know? And so I'm sure at the back of his mind, even thinking like, I can't believe how many lives are going to be lost because of my invention. Like, there still is a desire to stop 
those atrocities at the same time. So when he first invented this, what was the original intent? Was it to do what it ended up doing? Yes. Wow. As far as I know, and, and it's been years since I read this book, so excuse me if I'm... <laughs> yeah. um, but, it, you know, it was, a, it was a military operation. Like, he was hired by the U.S. government to do this. This was his job. Gotcha. Okay. So that's another question. Like, at what point do you step away from a job because it's going to, you know, have a bad consequences? He wasn't just like, yeah, all right, you hired me to make a bomb. I made a great bomb. He was like, oh, God, I made, I'm the destroyer of worlds. Part of me thinks of the actors, uh, actors' exercises where they have to say one sentence and they have to change the tone to then yeah. show that. Do you think he said, I am the destroyer of worlds? Or do you think I am the destroyer of worlds? Oh, yeah. Like, is he, yeah, I, I think he would probably put the emphasis on destroyer or gotcha. worlds. Oh, Okay. All right. I have a fictional example. You have such profound, um, wonderful, real, you know, nonfiction examples. And I'm like, here's this fictional um, example. Uh, Do you watch Black Mirror? Oh, yes. Okay. Did you see the episode called Black Museum? It's where a young woman shows up to... I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay. And I think I bailed. I bailed on a lot of Black Mirrors because I was like, I'm not going to feel good after this. No, it was not a feel good. Okay. There there was a little hint of hope at the end. Actually, it does have a hopeful... uh, Someone takes revenge at the end. Uh, The point of the story is that this girl shows up at this kind of roadside attraction. She's on a road trip somewhere, it's assumed, and she goes to check it out. And it turns out to be a museum. This person had taken people's consciousness and put them into holographic displays that you can then watch. But unfortunately, the displays are all bad things like people going Mm. through um, torture or you know someone I think it's like burned alive or something it's been a while since I've watched it but it really stuck with me because then it's not just a hologram you're not watching a hologram it's someone's consciousness Mm. and as you interact and keep watching um, the consciousness starts to kind of take on a life of its own you realize someone is actually suffering it may not be the same person that was alive a couple hundred years ago or even like less than a hundred years ago um, but their consciousness lives on Mm. And at the end, uh, I'll give away the spoiler alert. <laughs> My whole podcast is a spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> she takes revenge. It turns out that her own mother or one of her family members has been, has been her consciousness got uploaded into her. Mm. So she was able to, she came back to this place that was a terrible source of trauma for her family. And she just takes out like the whole museum. So she gets revenge and that's a good thing. But that's when I think about like leaving a legacy. This person was taking advantage of and exploiting people to create a museum. And while you're thinking of like immortality in some sense, what happens when you're not in control of yourself and someone else is taking advantage of you? It's scary. Right. Right. There's so many ways that immortality can be portrayed. Like I didn't even think about the person stuck in an object or like a genie in a bottle for, what does he say? 10,000 years? Yeah. Such a crick in the neck or something like that. In Beloved, Toni Morrison's Beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was doing some reading about Beloved because I definitely don't want to misspeak about this book. But it's an example of Beloved. So first, as a ghost, because like, ghosts are a way that we can use immortality in fiction. Mm-hmm. But the, the symbol of the resiliency of Black people to continue on after centuries of being dehumanized. So... In this book, we have the immortality of an entire people versus the immortality of one character. And then Ooh, okay. the last example that my friend gave me the other night when I was just kind of asking, like, what do you think about when you think of immortality in fiction? And uh, she gave me the example of Tuck Everlasting, which is such a cool example. It's, it's a YA book. It's a classic. But we have this young girl. She's 16, Winnie. And she falls in love with a 17-year-old, Jesse, who is immortal because he has, um, he has um, drank from a stream, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And the stream makes you immortal. Um, and I'll, I think that the ending of that book is just so, it was so sweet when I read it. I remember like 
reading it as a maybe sixth or seventh grader, but they get separated. He gives her a bottle of the water and says, drink it when you're 17. I'll come back for you. And we'll be 17 forever. And he comes back to the town, but not for 70 years. And then he sees her tombstone and realizes that she chose not to drink it. Ooh, okay. I've not read this book and now you've broke my heart. <laughs> it's a movie too with Alexis Liddell. <laughs> At like I, oh, I know. I've seen, I remember girl. seeing the trailers when it came out. Ooh, wow. Yeah. But it, I love that one because it gives her the agency to decide, like, do I want to be immortal or not? And he didn't pressure her yeah gave her the choice wow yeah because anything could have happened between then and now and maybe she met someone else and realized who knows she wants to have children and grow up and get old I mean who knows what happened to her right or she wants to have children and and not outlive them ah yeah okay you mentioned ghosts I want to I want to hear about that oh well the other ghosts um that I just jotted down Um, the way that they can function is like a very real ghost like Hamlet's father who is there like driving the plot forward because he's asking for vengeance and then you have ghosts like uh, a Christmas Carol who are also driving the plot forward but they're like um, ghosts seem to care very much about the the matters of the of the living don't they helping them they do Mm -hmm. helping them or um like in uh, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, we have a ghost who is man-made. She is haunting the house, but only because all the people around her won't let her go. So the living won't let her go, so she continues to haunt. Right. And it's and not she's that haunting. she's No, no, ah. she is not uh, a legitimate haunting. She's a, she's a haunting um, of obsession, which isn't really immortality, but it is... Uh, it leaves a legacy, kind of. It, well, definitely. Rebecca does deal with legacy. Interesting. It's, it's kind of fun to hear. I, I'm playing with ghosts right now, my current work in progress. Uh, they, my angle that I'm trying to explore is mental health of ghosts. Why are you still hanging around? Let's process this. It's a very government bureaucratic angle. <laughs> I think that's I, genius. Mental health of ghosts. Thanks. Yeah, I, I realized that my my niche with my books is that I can write from the perspective of a government employee yeah, and, and just play with it. <laughs> so yeah, my first book, it was about area 51, you know, government agents. And now I'm dealing with, uh, the public health, uh, mental health provide you know, services, uh, on behalf of the state, all, all that stuff. So they, yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. Uh, but anyway, I'm sorry, continue with your, with your ghost analysis. Oh, no, that that's really good. Um, just separating out like what kinds of ghosts can there be and how are we going to use them to drive the plot forward and I like your um your observation that in a lot of these things the ghosts are very invested in helping the living you know Mm -hmm. which seems pretty narcissistic on the the part of the living writers and I like that your uh, work in progress is giving those ghosts the spotlight but not in a scary way yeah inventive it's you know it's very true you're right because it is a very like the humans are living the center of the story well what if a ghost is like look i care about me right now you know <laughs> like right. i'm dead i've got stuff to figure out <laughs> right i'm dead but obviously i'm still sentient so mm-hmm. yeah maybe i want to go find a ghost boyfriend or girlfriend and live my <laughs> little ghost family you know what i mean <laughs> like, uh Okay, and you mentioned reincarnation. I love the idea of reincarnation. I I took a Greek mythology class in college, and I didn't realize just how much everything centers around the reincarnation idea. Even the sun rising and setting and then re-rising in the morning is Mm. an idea of reincarnation. Yeah, literally pulled by Apollo. Really, like, the examples I thought of of reincarnation, because I googled reincarnation of fiction, and I hadn't read any of the books, so... But for a summer, like a few years ago, I got really into Bollywood movies. And oh, there were, there's, that is, reincarnation in many Bollywood movies is just a completely like, understood um, theme. It's just. Yes. Have you yes. seen Om Shanti Om? That's then? what I was thinking about. I, I love, Om, love Shanti Om Shanti Om. Om. Yes. <laughs> I sing it all the time. Yes. So good. <laughs> I was like, what are you singing? <laughs> 
So Om Shanti Om is about a junior artist or an extra movie extra who wants to make it big and he falls in love with a main character, like a movie star, a beautiful movie star. And do you want to, do you want to carry on? No, you're going to do such a better job than me. Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, So I, okay. When I first watched this, I didn't know what I was getting into. My friend invited me over. She said, we're going to watch this film. I'm like, okay. And I go over and I'm like, cool. You got this junior artist who wants to meet up with this girl and then he finds out the devastating truth is she's actually married to a big shot producer but the big shot producer doesn't want anyone to know because back in the day if you're a a big star movie uh, actress no one wants to know that you're married they apparently you shrivel up and might as well not exist i guess (laughs) (laughs) um and so when she ends up getting pregnant she tells her producer husband he ends up burning her alive in this movie set and our main character tries to save her and he ends up dying too. So the midpoint, they all die. And I remember being like, what am I watching? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then the, the tide changes and he reincarnates and he actually gets to fulfill his dream because he happens to be married. He happens to be born to a famous actor. So then by nepotism, he is now also a famous actor and you get to see him carry out all these fantasies that were expressed in the first half of the movie until he realizes that the ghost of his love, the woman that he loved, is still at the movie set. Did I do a good job? Was, yeah. Was that <laughs> that, did you just do that off the top of your head? I did. I love that movie. Oh, my God. That was amazing. <laughs> it's been a long time since I saw it, but I do remember that midpoint of being like, what? <laughs> How do you yes. kill all the main characters an hour and a half in? Mm-hmm. And hearing yep. you describe that, like, I might be realizing that my work in progress is more inspired by Om Shanti Om than I realize. <laughs> well, it's a good, it's such good. I mean, it's so good. Uh, anyway, what were we going to say about reincarnation in general? Um, I, I think that you summed up just about everything. It's just a way that it can be, that immortality can be um, used as a, a craft element, you know, um, to drive the plot forward or in reincarnation, letting characters continue their work or their mission over the span of multiple lifetimes. Do you think reincarnation and ghost, the belief in either can coexist? If you re like what prevented you from reincarnating? This is a very hypothetical question. What prevented me from reincarnating? Like if a character reincarnates and another character ghosts, what determined the path of either of them? Why did our junior artist become a reincarnated figure and why did one character turn into a ghost? What was the difference? Would you say? Interesting. Um, I really should know if there are ghosts in Hinduism, but I don't. I always wonder like when, from a writer's perspective, what, what would cause you to choose which way, I guess, um, reincarnation, the main characters, it's his opportunity to live his second life, but what kept it from her? being able oh. to live her second chance. interesting so they do have ghosts in hinduism oh they do okay mm-hmm. uh i mean i literally just did a google search so not going to speak as an expert on that in any way <laughs> um that is interesting i think because they both have the the idea of an uncompleted mission right like mm-hmm. reincarnation you're moving towards you're, you're uh, working through your karma work working towards nirvana correct and then a ghost also is like well i didn't get everything done on earth that time so i'm going to stick around until i either a decide that i am dead and go mm. into the light which is how a lot of episodes of things end and then um or complete their mission it certainly seems like the the person that reincarnated has a much more proactive role and a higher chance of succeeding versus the character who's stuck as a ghost. Totally. Totally. Interesting. So I, I guess from a writer's perspective, if it depends on which character has agency. And right. Yeah. It, seems, it also seems like a ghost. Um, a ghost seems more angry. Mm, yeah. You know, like unresolved. Whereas um, in, in reincarnation, you would have a fresh chance. I, I agree with that. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk to as far as examples in legacy building? No, I also wrote zombies, but I don't really think I have anything to say about zombies. (laughs) Well, I mean, when it comes to zombies, could you imagine if you became a zombie and then you're nothing like what you were? Well, okay, so that's also 
that is kind of interesting because a lot of times when we were talking about immortality, so according to this book I talked about at the very beginning, this speech, um, you have physical immortality and then you have spiritual immortality. So a zombie is experiencing physical immortality and not spiritual immortality Ooh. because they are a shell of their former selves. And then a like a ghost or reincarnated person is experiencing spiritual immortality. So, so hypothetically, if your zombie body shell is just zombieing around, you could become a ghost and like just watch yourself from a distant perspective. You're like, well, shit. <laughs> or you're reincarnated and you become your future victim. <laughs> you know? So here's an interesting um, fiction. We could do three people die. One becomes or I guess we can't say die, but three characters, one becomes a zombie, one becomes a ghost, and one gets reincarnated, and they're all interacting, and they are, um, I'm sure there are pros and cons to each, although I would definitely say I don't want to be the zombie. Yeah, I wouldn't either. That seems terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that really does seem terrible. Like, who would, who would win? Or, like, how would um, their interaction? What if they were result? trying to achieve a common goal? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so you have a zombie a ghost and a reincarnated person i'm sorry was that the third yeah one? okay yeah. well the reincarnated person the zombie are going to be a problem um so you have to like control the zombie uh what would their goal be i don't know this was a bad thought experiment no it's funny <laughs> i think it's really funny because like they, they're gonna have constant issues now the ghost i'm hoping will become like a mature ghost but then depending on the laws of ghosts at what point do they stop being ghosts if they've reached you know self-awareness or right. you know so will that so will that poor reincarnated person is just going to be traumatized yeah that poor reincarnated person um i think the ghosts in harry potter are pretty self-aware they're funny oh, that's true. you know that that's a good example of um ghosts as just like vibrant side characters that's true. Yes, I do love the ghosts in Harry Potter. Uh, I was going to bring up the celebrity public domain thing. Are, is there anything else you wanted to cover? Oh before my I do gosh! That? Well, no, and I I forgot you were going to bring that up because wasn't there a whole thing with James Dean's hologram being cast in a film, and people were like, "Uh, I don't think that's very ethical." Yes, I've seen that, and I have seen Marilyn Monroe come up as a problem. So, okay, a per okay. Uh, let me back up real quick and explain. So, a person's identity, we have a right of publicity, which means we can control the commercial value of our own name, likeness, voice, and signature, or any other personal identifying traits that are unique to you. The right of publicity was first identified in, in a 1953 case, which was Halen Laboratories versus Topps Chewing Gum Incorporated where the court pointed out that the right of publicity was not based on protecting a person's privacy, but on preventing the unauthorized use of a person's name or likeness. So a good example, a modern example of this is Bette Mittler sued when a car company used a, a sound-alike singer to sell their cars. Hmm. And she had the grounds to sue. But then you have... Bob Ross is a really good example. Bob Ross's family don't benefit from any of the products that are being sold. Uh, sold. Um, wow. On, on behalf of his image. Uh, mm. there's a, oh, you, you know. Oh, wow. That makes me think of Henrietta Lacks. Um, it's the Henrietta Lacks was the the woman in the in the fifties who died of um, cervical cancer, mm -hmm. and unbeknownst to her, she had a sample taken from her tumor at Johns Hopkins and um, that's right okay that's where we get the, the Gila cell line mm -hmm. that has now gone to space and you know been experimented on in so many ways it's made so many um, individuals extremely rich and then her family is is still living in poverty Ooh, yes and so it opened Absolutely. up this huge case of you know do we own our body parts and do we own our, our biological um, the legality around um ownership of your own tissue samples isn't that fascinating that we're at that point where you have to think about legal language like that to preserve yourself well right well this is the reason why because she passed away in 1951 yeah and her cells so they had they had tried to make an immortal chicken heart 
um, it was a French scientist, um, Alexis Carrel was his name, and um, he was like a eugenicist, like not not a great guy. Um, but they had this immortal chicken heart. It it actually was debunked, and then this is the, so after that um, there was like this race to create an immortal cell line that they, a, a cell line that would replicate forever. And so the the cells, these HeLa cells, like anybody who studies science, did you study science? Very, if I studied it, I forgot it. (laughs) (laughs) If I studied it in school, I forgot it. But if I read about it later, which there's this book by uh, Rebecca Scoot is her name. By Yeah, Rebecca Scloot, S-K-L-O-O-T. It came out in um, 2010 called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And it's nonfiction. It's so good but it reads like fiction I mean you are so invested in this story now that we've unpacked a lot of different ways that someone can has shown to be legacy builders or immortal Mm -hmm. what do you think will happen to your personal legacy after you die well I am an only child I barely have any cousins um and I don't know, like, if I'm not a published author by the time I die, I think I will just slide into obscurity. <laughs> because I also, I don't plan on having any children. So I might have no blood relatives. Okay. So, I don't know. I have a kind of bleak answer on that. But I, you know, maybe it's kind of cliche to say, hopefully I'll have written something that will be out there. And I'll have someone remember me because my words will have meant something. I think about the years of documentation that exist on web on the web. So whether it's that random Flickr account mm. I might've had or, uh, you know, Facebook or Instagram, I just think about how, as long as the internet still exists, I mean, unplug the, the networks and everything goes oh, down and no, we're everything's gone. gone. We're gone. Um, but when I think about what we just talked about recently, what was it? The right of publicity. I wonder if, we'll run into similar situations with uh, social media accounts and how, for example, there are so many scammers out there that will buy accounts using your photo or whatever Mm. to inflate their followership. And so there you are. It's like a clone of your internet self. Right. Or continue to use your likeness to collect some sort of, I mean, not like my generation doesn't have a pension, but like to collect some sort of benefit in your name people yeah identity theft in that way and so maybe part of me wonders if like we'll get to a point in the future where it gets it spins so far out of control because you got the wild wild west component of the internet that eventually you just got to unplug the whole thing um i I think about that a lot yeah (laughs) like would we just be better off because on on one hand we learn so much like i'm on jstor all the time for school and it's just right there i can't imagine having to go to a library and like use the Dewey Decimal System to find a source that's probably like the source I brought today that's like 70 years old. Yeah, yeah. Or like how we're able to just look things up as we're talking on the fly. Exactly. Okay, so then let's think of a, let's have a fun thought exercise. If you, now everything's on the table, sci-fi, fantasy, horror. If you could come up with a unique way to stay immortal, what would it be? And so Louise, the linguist, and if I ever get the chance to like, get another master's degree I would definitely want to do it in linguistics it's just super fascinating to me and it it comes and ties into the Sapir Whorf hypothesis which has always really fascinated me though it's been debunked in in certain areas but I do think there's something to it that by learning this heptapod language that's circular she's able to experience in experience time in a non-linear way so she's able to literally be in scene in scene in her life with them her deceased daughter. And so in that way, she is experiencing some sort of immortality, but it's not physical. Exist all at all times, all at once. Exactly. Interesting. What about you? What would you pick? So uh, I thought of two different things. One was I felt is very done and then I got creative. So, okay, let me tell you the first one. I feel like the most realistic accessible means of immortality, like I'm thinking mass production would be injections or some kind of eternity drug. Mm would introduce the clock right so what happens when you run out you have desperate people and then i could picture corporations maximizing costs for whoever like uh, profits i'm sorry maximizing their profits for whoever's selling these injections so i thought i thought of that first as what what is most realistic didn't think it was the most creative or fun 
Then I found an article because I was like, all right, who's lived, what's lived the longest? I found an article that measured the longest living plants and animals known. So the oldest human was 122. Mm. The box turtle can live to 138. Red oaks live over 300 years. The oldest known plant in the whole world is a creosote ring that's lived over 11,000 years. Whoa. So it's a, it's a clonal colony. So it's not one single bush, but it's a ring of creosote. And they call it king clone. And they were able to age it by carbon dating the wood samples. So right there, right there is a secret to immortality. Um, I'm pretty sure the creosote bush lives on the fountain of youth. Um, the, the New York Times article talked about a botanist who's working to preserve the bush. So now I'm like, we should check how old he really is. Because, you know, I feel like anyone that's close to yeah. this bush has discovered the, the means to living forever. Because I was shocked. That is such a long, like a long life. And it's still going strong. And I saw pictures of it. I didn't quite look up where it's at. I felt worried about looking up where it's at. Like, I'm like, I don't want to hurt the bush or tell yeah. people to go find it. Um, but it looks, you would have no idea. It's just bushes in the middle of the desert. Interesting. And yet it's over 11,000 years. So my thought is I would harvest said bush, turn their leaves or whatever into tea. I don't know if creosote's naturally like poisonous. I have no idea. But I would figure out how to use that bush to then almost like um, Rapunzel or Mother Gothel. It would sing to, to yeah, it would do yeah, that. It, it would just some some compound in the bush would have to like make your telomeres really strong because that's the physiological element like within at the ends of your chromosomes that when your telomeres mm-hmm. deteriorate, your chromosomes deteriorate, and that the t- the length of your telomeres is what basically um, determines how long you'll live. That's exactly what I meant. You're way smarter than me. <laughs> no, I, this is this is literally the research I've done for my own novel. And I'm oh. also really realizing I misunderstood that question. I thought you were like, if you could stay immortal, how would you do it? And I was like, I want to be like Louise. Okay, yeah. But Which, that wasn't that, very, That's what I got. That wasn't very creative. Oh, okay. Oh, no. no, I liked it because some people may not have seen it and maybe they'll okay. go watch it now. Well, the way I came up, to st- came up with to stay immortal in my work in progress is that they have this cult and... Um, it's astral projectors. And so they, it's like a scientist or an artist or somebody who's you know, famous and has a following and they're going to come to the end of their physical life, but they feel like they could keep doing more um, work in subsequent lifespans. And so they get a volunteer into the cult who wants to house their spirit or their soul. And so at the moment of death, they um, astrally project and inhabit the next body Wow. What happens to the, the body that they're, that's hosting them now? Does that person's original spirit go somewhere else? Or are they trapped? Well, that's what we're finding out in the novel. It's, Ooh, a, it's a mystery. For the, for the person that's on the inside, it's not um, a very pleasant experience. It's very trippy. There's not enough room in here for the both of us. Someone's got to go. Exactly. So it's like, I mean, almost in like, um, you know, that, that movie, um, Get Out, the mm-hmm. Jordan Peele. Yes. Um, when the mother the, is like the mother character, Catherine Keener, I can't remember her character in the in the movie, but she's got that spoon and she's hypnotizing um, Daniel Kalua, And then he like falls backwards down through his body. So like that, like that kind of kind out, of, of, like out that. of body experience. Yeah. It's, gotcha. like, it's actually like a very deep in body experience. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's yeah. a trippy in body experience. Okay. Okay. So then reflecting on everything we've discussed thus far, what do you think is the most meaningful form of legacy building? We've seen characters use uh, immortality to ensure their legacy. We've seen people's consciousness and, and legacy get taken advantage of us simply because they continue to exist. So what do you think is the most meaningful form of legacy building? I kind of took this question as being very literal. I think the most important, um, sorry, the most meaningful form of legacy building is something that we do all the time, which is teaching. Mm -hmm. I really, really hate the phrase, those who can't do teach, because what are we living if not a culmination of literally every person that's ever lived Mm -hmm. and what they learned passed on? Like, I think about this a lot because... I teach um, piano lessons to kids and part of me wants to spend more time on my own piano practice and and I don't play as much as I used to and I could like if I 
spent several hours on it a day I could learn all these Chopin songs and like but what what for I'm never gonna fill out a concert venue I'm never gonna enjoy playing it for people the way that I would enjoy teaching these children how to play and I think it's fulfilling um, a very human part of me that that wants to have a legacy because they might not remember me when they're adults I don't remember my first piano teacher but look what she did for me I'm able to make part of my career uh, into teaching this the skill to other people yeah I think teaching is a great form of legacy building uh, what you mentioned made me think of like for instance I have great great grandparents I don't know who they are or what they do or what they did mm-hmm. and unlike you know the internet today which documents so many things we don't have those things to pull back on so as when you die and people forget you and then or the people that did remember you die and the forgetfulness carries on down I thought about how like leaving a legacy is is about the ripple effects of what you can do in your actions. So teaching, mm-hmm. as you're saying, is one of them. I think about how if you've if you recognize something wrong systemically, participating in ways to dismantle oppression or you know like making things easier, more accessible. Uh, one one example I can give is when I first entered the workforce, I found it to be incredibly unfriendly to families. Mm. And the natural competitive environment that comes out of it is really hard when you're pregnant and you can't remember how to speak because you have pregnancy brain Mm -hmm. and you're tired, you can't walk as fast and you're just, it feels like you are held back in in a highly competitive environment. And that's why we have all these laws to ensure that people are protected. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's always room for progress. And when the pandemic came and people had to go home, that was when I had to be a mother, a full-time worker, and a teacher at the same time. And to me, it felt like unless the person in charge could not relate to these hardships, nothing got done about it. And Totally. So, yeah. Uh, so my goal during that entire time was to participate as much as I could. I, I can only My reach is only as far as the organization I'm in, but to make sure that voice was heard and now we're looking at improved work in, uh, conditions that ultimately become much more family friendly. And so for me, I'm like, I don't need, I don't need a name on a building. Some people really do. They want their names on things and that's why they do things. Uh, but for me, it's like, it's less about that because I don't like that attention. I just want to know that things are easier now. I benefit from this being easier and I know other people will too. Yeah. That's really beautiful. And it, yeah, that's, that's, we are creating the experiences for generations that come after us. There's a, um, a writer and educator, Layla Efsad. Um, she, she does some anti-racism teachings, but she has a podcast called um, Good Ancestor Podcast. And her thing is being a good ancestor. And I love that concept of just what kind of legacy am I building for people I will never meet and who will never know I existed interesting okay that makes me think about my own family and a lot of emphasis on respecting your elders honoring your ancestors the Mm -hmm. family um family expectations and how um as a result many times people that you've never met are in positions of being revered and you don't see the human side of those things you don't see the flaws because they've they've transcended oh yeah and it's nice to be able to think what can you do as an as as a as an, a future ancestor? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. To to kind of help guide and lead rather than being used as something that people have to kind of look up to and aspire to of of perfection, maybe or pressure. Right. Well, that also makes me think that if we're considering ourselves from an ancestral perspective, that maybe we could give ourselves the type of. Uh, soft focus grace that we do give the deceased you know oh yeah you know as soon as someone goes we we focus on the good about them as you do Mm -hmm. so maybe there's license to do that for ourselves if we're thinking of ourselves as future ancestors that's a really good point (laughs) relieve yourself of your own pressures right now in this moment yes okay is there anything else you want to cover before we move on to i have a game either a game or rapid fire questions that I did not tell you about ahead of time. Oh, I'm so bad at rapid fire. That's like my uh, my biggest fear is someone coming up to me on the street and being like, 
name a male celebrity and me being like <laughs> Julia Roberts <laughs> I just, my, <laughs> mine are hopefully a little okay so I either created a fun fact like trivia like speculative fiction trivia game or rapid fire questions but they're not meant to startle or scare they're meant to just get to know you better oh, well let's do that one I'm not extremely well versed in speculative fiction okay all right so this one's going to start easy what is your favorite day of the week and why Oh, you're asking someone who is a full-time freelancer, so I can't tell you my last day off. But I'm going to say Tuesday. Okay. Is it because <laughs> it's not Monday? Um, it's like a softer start to the week? No, it's, um, it's just the things that I usually have on my schedule on Tuesdays. And I'm not going to say that I have favorite piano students, but the lineup on Tuesday is awesome. Okay. All right. <laughs> Who is your favorite Disney character? See, these are softballs, right? Um, can I say which uh, character I like, had a big crush on? Uh, do it, yeah. Simba. <gasps> <laughs> That's awesome. You know what? I, I like totally bonded with someone the other day because we were like, do you remember when Simba was crossing that log and he like was for a second like kind of an adolescent and we were kids? We were like, oh, he's so cool. He's so... <laughs> yes. um, but, like, if I have to pick Disney Princess, and to be fair, I have not seen many of the new movies. Like, um, I watched Encanto recently, and I really liked that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really it's liked Louisa, the strong one. I think she was my favorite one there. But of all time, I mean, I just got to say Belle. She's a French-speaking brunette who has her nose in a book. Yes! I was super fitting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, what mythical creature would you believe was real? If you had to, like, suspend reality and go, yeah, that could happen. Oh, well, isn't the unicorn the national animal of Scotland? That's real oh, then, right? Theref- <laughs> therefore, it is real. <laughs> yeah. Fun fact. Yeah, there you go. Um, what is your Hogwarts house? Ravenclaw. Ravenclaw. I'm a Ravenclaw. I think I'm a Ravenclaw. I, yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. Okay. Because... I, I have friends who are Hufflepuff had to find as Hufflepuff. I'm like, okay, I feel like we're different. <laughs> I love I, a Hufflepuff. They totally great. like, yeah, she didn't do them right in the books. But when you know a real Hufflepuff, Hufflepuff mm-hmm. who's so community focused and like yes. generous. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. What about, okay. When you know, when you meet a Gryffindor. Um, so many of my piano students claim to be Gryffindors uh-huh. and I'm not so sure. Okay. I don't know. The line between Gryffindor and Slytherin is quite thin sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about like whether or not you think your loyalties are for good or bad. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, would you rather, this is a would you one or the other, would you rather speak every human language out there or would you rather speak with animals? Oh my God. When you said the first one in the language, I was like, uh, that, duh, there's literally nothing she could say that would be better. And then you said animals. <laughs> oh, I don't know. You know what? I can learn languages. I'm going to take the animal one. You know, I agree because you've just opened up the world to like, now you can learn about the culture in animals. Yeah. And, and maybe we can learn from them. Yeah. There's so and you're the only one. Bees. And then you should charge for your services and then you'd be rich. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> okay last one if you could travel back in time what time period would you go to oh that's a really good one I don't really fantasize about history all that much like I feel like as far as like the landscape for where I want to be it's like getting better all the time yeah yeah um, when people say that like the glory days of the olden days I'm like uh, who for who <laughs> yeah like I mean I would have been okay let me that's a really good question I'm so bad at these right off the top of my head but um I think I think I would like to just maybe go back and and have some conversations with my own grandparents oh but you know at being able to ask them questions as an adult so the time period I'm gonna say I don't know 1999 (laughs) okay and you know it's funny I was also thinking about going back to the 90s and I don't know if that's because it's my own nostalgia or it's not like I've lived it, so I know um, I'll survive it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think I would like to just be able to, like, drop into, like, southern Canada and, like, the Lewis and Clark era just to, like, experience the night sky for, like, a few hours. But it, I don't really want to live at that time. Yeah. Yeah. 
it seems like it'll be kind of rough and women don't have rights yeah doesn't sound good <laughs> no we'll be witches at some point and get burned <laughs> at the stake it'd be great yeah <laughs> all right so thank you so much for joining me is there anything else you wanted to add no I'm just I, what I wrote down for you know if there's anything you want to promote I, I don't have anything to promote but if anybody has listened this long I just want to say if you are a writer and you don't have a writing community I just want to encourage you to make one. And I started a writing club eight years ago just by getting a few friends together. And we still meet up every month and we finish novels and musicals and books of poetry. And like just having that community around me for the accountability and to celebrate when someone gets published. We have a group thread and we just text each other. And it's just this really great thing. And um, just shout out to my writing club, the Paper State Writing Club in Nashville. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like yourselves. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter and Instagram. Interested in being in a future episode? Email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.